right, good morning, everyone. Pastor Brent, how about, uh, we're gonna send someone out to check whether you're in the lines outside with your cars. This is a test, actually, that's why we did it. It was just a test. So this is part of our foundation phase for the Roots and Branches uh, vision that we have. And so praise the Lord. So thank you for supporting that and working through that. Okay, um, you gonna be okay? All right. <laughs> All right, if, let's get started here. Um, if you know me well, you know that I love the mountains, any mountains, as a matter of fact. And my favorites, especially in Sierra Nevadas uh, and the Rocky Mountains, Sierra is where I grew up in California. My brothers and I used to go on backpacking trips. We'd go fishing for a few days. We'd go explore a new place. Just love being outside in the mountains. Well, one very memorable experience that I had was a hunting trip a few years ago in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness of Northern Idaho. And my brothers and I wanted to go out there to do some hunting. We just pulled out a map and put our finger on a spot and said, that looks like a good place. We'd never been there before. And we decided to go on a hike back into the wilderness. Well, we hiked along for a few days along the Selway, Selway River, and we were three hours by car from the nearest town, and more than 10 miles deep as we hiked along this river from the nearest road. So we are a long ways from any civilization. If you've ever experienced something like this, one of the most striking features of the deep wilderness is how dark it gets at night. When the conditions are right, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And there's no urban glow, there's no street lights, there's really no human-created light at all. And, and I'll never forget at these moments when we're out there in the mountains and the wilderness, how much at night I craved light. There's something when these dark moments surround us that even the smallest light can be a really powerful thing. So one of the mornings on this trip, we decided to get up really early. We wanted to get up to a vantage point that was on a mountainside that was 2,000 feet up. And so we got up uh, very early, hiked up and up the side of this mountain, arrived in the dark hours long before dawn, and we turned off our headlamps and sat there in the pitch darkness overlooking this valley. Now, it was in front of me, in the darkness, mind you, it was, you know, maybe 2,000 feet down to the river below, 1,500, 2,000 feet, and then, and then maybe five miles away is another 2,000-foot mountain slope up the other side. And I was sitting there, my eyes absorbing the darkness, scouring, searching, craving for light, and I remember seeing something really peculiar across the valley. Slowly and surely, disappearing and reappearing through the trees was this tiny, small light. It was probably another hunter or a hiker wearing a headlamp, just like I had been going up the mountain, moving across this expanse miles away. And yet that little light was so stark and clear in the absolute darkness. My eyes could not stop looking at it. It was one of those moments where it is so dark that I became fixated on this light. It was small and it was a long ways off, but it was like my whole being was reaching out to this light, wanting to desperately know its illuminating power. What struck me in this moment was how even a little light made the darkness more bearable. That that little light pierced 
through from miles away. That the darkness can't stop it. That my, that my, it was like my soul wanted this light in the middle of this blackness of the wilderness. And the reason I saw that light is because it was perched up on a mountain. High where I could see it across, casting its light across this expanse to sort of draw me towards it. Friends, what we're going to look at this morning is a passage from the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that shows us the attractive and illuminating power of light. Especially as we are uh, walking through this dark world that we live in. So grab your Bible. And open to Matthew chapter 5 with me. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 16. And actually this passage has a couple different metaphors we're going to look at. But let me give you a little context before we read our text. Because we're jumping right into the kind of the middle of the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. This Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus' central teaching about the kingdom of God. He first lists the kind of character and actions of a true disciple of his kingdom. We call this the Beatitudes. So that's verses 3 through 10, right? Those who are blessed, as Jesus says, are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. These qualities, if you read the rest of the Gospels, these are qualities that mirror Jesus himself. And he's asking us to stand like he did and does in stark contrast to the ways of the world. Now, if you live in these ways, what Jesus acknowledges in verses 11 and 12 is that it will likely lead to persecution and difficulty. For his sake, because we follow him. And so followers of Christ will be treated, as Jesus says, like the prophets of old. And in that you should rejoice. Because our hope and our joy is really in heaven. And so in light of this calling to live in these ways, to stand in prophetic contrast and embody the values of the kingdom, Jesus concludes the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount by using two metaphors to explain our witness in the world. How we are sent as his ambassadors. One of the metaphors is negative, one is positive. So let's look at them and you'll see what I mean as we go through the text. So um, read along with me, follow along in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jesus says these words, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, as you can see in this short text, we see two complementary and related metaphors that describe followers of Christ as we are sent out into the world. Now, so what we're going to do is examine those two metaphors, and then we're going to talk about how we apply them to us as a church family at this time in this unique moment in the life of our church. So let's look at those two metaphors, okay? Salt and light. The first thing we need to do is appreciate the overall structure of this 
passage, recognizing that when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke them with great intention. Verse 13 and then verses 14 and 15 have a parallel structure to them, each beginning with an identity statement about who we are, and then a description of the opposite of that identity. Like, what would, you, what would happen? What, look, what does it look like if you do the opposite of what you are called to be? And so in that way, he draws a contrast or helps us to see this. And so the identity statements are this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then the, the opposites are, well, what happens when a salt loses its saltiness? Or what happens when you take a light and you hide it under a bowl? And so what we see here is a comparison using two images that were so common to everyday life. Salt and light. And so you'll see it on the screen here. Here's how the parallel goes. He says, you are salt. Don't be useless salt. You are light, don't be hidden light. Now, salt and light, these are describing our influence. So let's look at the meaning of them because they're actually, they're very different in how they play out. Okay, go back to verse 13 with me. Let's look at the one of salt first. Salt, you need to know, slows decay. In the ancient world, Salt was primarily used as a preservative. There weren't any refrigerators. We didn't have deep freezers. We didn't have preservatives in our food, which, you know, may or may not be a good thing, right? So we, back in that day, it was fresh. And you have to find a way to preserve your food so that you can, uh, especially in the ancient Near East, where it was an oppressively hot climate, right? So salt was to slow the process of decay, now, there's a New Testament scholar, Don Carson. He explains when you take this metaphor of salt being a preservative and you apply it to us as Christians, this is what it means. He says, when Christians live out the way of the kingdom, which we just saw, you read it in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, they are aiding to delay moral and spiritual decay in the world. Apart from Christians, the world would turn ever more rotten. Now, if we're honest, and you sort of look around at the world around us, it seems pretty rotten already. But we aren't the first ones to experience a generation of upheaval, to see things turning sour. There's a great preacher, his name's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was, okay, this is kind of the trajectory of his life. He was born in 1899. He began serving as a pastor in 1927. And he served until 1968. Think about what happened during the course of those years of his life. He observed firsthand the ravages of two world wars, the Great Depression, and all of the radical cultural changes that happened in the 1950s and 60s. See, Lloyd-Jones, he, he once reflected in a sermon on the optimism that existed when he was a kid, okay? Born in 1899, so when he was a child, he's hearing all of the optimism coming out of the 1800s. They looked ahead to a new century, and they said, this is going to be amazing. This is what he says about the optimism before the tragedies of the 20th century. He says the controlling idea was that the whole of life was advancing, it was developing. It was going upwards. Wars were going to be abolished. Disease were to be cured. Suffering was going to not only be ameliorated, but finally eradicated. The whole world was very soon to be paradise. This was the outlook at the start of the 20th century. 
It sounds sort of like the promises we hear today, doesn't it? Okay, but Lloyd-Jones says there's a big problem. This is how he goes on. He says, At a, as the result of sin in the fall, life in the world in general tends to get into a putrid state. Far from being a tendency in life and, and in this world to go upwards, we see the exact opposite. He says the world left to itself is something that tends to fester. He says there's a sense, therefore, in which no Christian should be in the least surprised at what has taken place. He wrote those words in 1959. In the rearview mirror is World War II. Millions of people dead. The Holocaust. I mean, all of the things. And the rearview mirror behind that is the Great Depression. And the rearview mirror behind that is World War I. At the start of that century, everybody said, it's about we're going to see paradise. And this is his reflection in 1959. He says that our role as Christians, even as we look at our own day and age, in a world that's prone to rot, is to slow the decay. He said what your role is, what Jesus says is you are salt, is that you in your workplaces, in your communities, in your families, we stand in prophetic contrast to the world. That we find ways to sprinkle that salt in unbendingly walking in faithfulness to Christ. That we make our lives about being in God's kingdom as individuals, as a church family. And, and the way that we do this is we, as we're infiltrating like salt into these places that could, that could sour, is he says that we live with integrity. We embody the values of the kingdom that we see in the Beatitudes, that we see in Jesus' teaching, that we see in Scripture, that we do it through prayer, that we do it by the, the, the power of the Spirit and in daily communion with the Lord. And, and in these ways, we are a preserving influence, like salt. Now, that's the metaphor's meaning. Now, Jesus gives us a warning, though. He says salt can lose its saltiness. It can become useless for preserving anything. What does he mean by this? Okay, the key here you need to understand is that salt is useless when it's diluted. When it's compromised. Okay, in the ancient world, they didn't have purely refined salt like we have today. You can just go down to the store, it's cheap, you can buy salt, and it's, 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 it's pure. It's, it's, it's all that it is. In, in the ancient world, it was a little more difficult in that they refined salt. They harvested it from sources like the Dead Sea. And as they would evaporate the water, as they would, as they would gather that up, sometimes it was dustier, it was prone to have contaminants. Depending on the quality that you got, it could actually be the majority, not salt. And so with these contaminants in it, it was, could be this white powder, this dust that looks like salt, but it actually isn't. And when you tried to use it and you pour that salt on your food and then you leave for a few hours and you come back, it didn't do anything and your food is ruined. And so the food and the salt are only worthy to be thrown in the trash or because it's mostly dust, as Jesus says, you know what it's worthy for? Throw it back out on the path where it can get trampled. That's all that it is. It's just dust. Friends, this is so important when you talk about what salt is and the uselessness of it when it's diluted. When Christians become contaminated by the world, we lose our influence. 
when we start to speak like the world does or we act like or we look like or we have the, we lose the ability to have a prophetic contrast to walk in the ways of God's kingdom, to be unique and kingdom-minded and peculiar in a way that reflects Jesus to the world. And so we have to check ourselves day by day to say, are we walking according to the values of God's kingdom or the kingdom of this world to not be diluted or compromised? Now, so that's the salt metaphor. You can see how in salt, salt has is, is, is got that preserving influence. It's slowing something. Light, on the other hand, has a positive and a, and a shedding of something good into the situation. And so what we need to understand here with light is that light overcomes darkness. Light is something that we need, something that we should crave, something that brings clarity and safety and goodness. It should be attractive drawing us to its illuminating power, just like that, that experience of being in the wilderness and seeing that light across in the midst of the blackness of the wilderness. See, we need to understand a little bit of background on, on the metaphor of light in the Bible. Light in the Old Testament was used to symbolize some overlapping ideas, namely revelation from God. When God speaks, it's like his light is shining into the darkness. The, 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 the metaphor of light is used in the Old Testament to talk about instruction, to being taught the good and right things, things that are true. It uses light to talk about the law in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. We talk about light as righteousness in the Old Testament, or light is used as a metaphor of God's presence in the Bible. It represents all things good, but here's what I want you to know, and here's what we need to make sure we're careful to recognize. We need to emphasize where the light comes from. What's the source of the light? What we need to remember, of course, is that Jesus is the ultimate light of the world, the perfect revelation from God. Remember in our study of John, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this as he speaks to the people. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You remember the Gospel of John has all these, has seven I am statements. This is the only I am statement of Jesus that he connects to us. We are not the bread of life. We're not the door to the sheep pen. We're not the good shepherd. We're not the resurrection and the life. We're not the way, the truth, and the life. We're not the true vine. But when we are in Christ... When you are a blood-bought child of God, when you find that you've been redeemed and that you are in union with Christ in his death and resurrection, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We are the light just as he is the true light because we are in him. When we're born again, when we're filled with his spirit, we are now living witnesses, his ambassadors. It is his light shining through us. Some of you might remember um, a dear sister in the Lord, Dorothy Reese. Dorothy, when I arrived here at New Life five years ago, if I have the math right, Dorothy had just turned 102. And she had been a a faithful member and attender of this church for decades. 
And she was in the nursing home in Hastings. She was no longer able to be here on Sundays. I would go visit and spend time with her down in Hastings. And I just remember, it was so sweet having opportunities to visit, to talk about Jesus, to talk about faith. And I would ask her questions like, what was Hastings like in the 1930s when you moved here? You know, fascinating to talk with her. See, we would sit there and, and, and we would pray together. And I remember, I'll never forget, I remember one moment when we were talking about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to her, 102. God's faithfulness to this church through the decades. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I pray every day that this little dome church would be a light for Jesus in this community. In her mind's eye, she sees this weird-shaped building. <laughs> and she sees this, you know, motley crew of people coming from all different generations and walks of life and, and, and different experiences in the ways that we've seen God's faithfulness and his grace in us. And in her mind's eye, she's praying. She's saying, you are the light of the world. Whoa. In this place... God has chosen us to bring his light. It's been my prayer, too, that our community needs the light of Christ. Our friends, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, everyone needs to see the light of Jesus, to see the gospel shining bright. And you know what this means? It means we can't hide it. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. We can't be afraid to speak the name of Jesus or do the works that he's called us to do. Some of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's pastor, who stood up to the Nazis in the 1930s. And he wrote a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. He knew what that meant. Was martyred for his faith just months before the war ended in 1945. He said this in his book. He said, a community of Jesus that seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. We need to let the light of Christ shine through us. This means we actively engage in shining light into this dark world. It's through our words and our deeds. It's through our proclamation and our stewardship with the things that we do. It's through truth-telling and through our loving care. It's through our mouths and our hands that people will see Jesus. Not being ashamed, not being afraid, not hiding. This is why Jesus explains the result. Why do we shine the light of Christ? Look at verse 16, and you'll see this. He talks about how a light should not be hidden. And then he says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what this means. We don't conceal who we are. We are blood-bought children of God who belong to a different kingdom. We have the Spirit. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we live to please our Heavenly Father. That's who we are. Woo! <laughs> and we don't conceal what we know to be true. Friends, Jesus really is King. 
<laughs> and, and, and Jesus, he's really king. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. The gospel is good and beautiful. Other, uh, other things are, 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 are so not even comparing to God in his light and the light that we have of Christ, that Christ calls us to repentance and faith. Friends, this is what is true, and we stand for what is true in prophetic contrast to the world. We don't conceal who we are. We don't conceal what we know to be right and good. And here's why. Okay, pastor and theologian, there's a pastor and theologian named John Stott. He wrote about this reality of bringing glory to the Father through shining the light. This is what he says. When we live the life described in the Beatitudes, people will see us in our good works, and seeing us will glorify God. For they will, they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are. That our light is his light. That our works are his works done in and through us. And so it is that the light they will praise, not the lamp which bears it. Friends, that's what our witness is all about. That people would see the light that is shining in our lives is derived from, it's the source of, it comes from God himself through Christ in the work that is done by the Spirit in our lives. That we, like lamps, would shine bright, but people would praise the light and not the lamp that bears it. This is what it means to be sent what it means to embody the gospel in word and deed, to see every opportunity as a way to point to Christ. Okay, we need to apply this. What's it look like for us to live this out? I want to talk specifically, as we have the last week or two, about our vision for our church. Because we're at this important moment in the life of our church. We want to ensure that we're on the same page about our, our priorities, our vision. We are a gospel-centered church, and we've been talking about having a gospel-centered approach to welcoming transforming and sending. We're a welcoming church because we are all sinners saved by grace. Can I get an amen? Yeah. We're sinners saved by grace. Our hands are open to receive the free gift of salvation, full surrender, boasting in Christ alone. And now we welcome each other as a community of sinner saints, level ground at the foot of the cross. And friends, then we're a transforming church because we want to take the precious treasure we have in the gospel and steward it for a kingdom return for God's glory. And then we're ascending, church, which means freely we've received, freely we give. We've received Christ with open hands. When we were in desperate need, and that means we give with open hands that others would, who are in desperate need would know the light of Christ shining through us. It's what it means for us to be sent. And in this approach, this approach centered in the gospel, I want you to see something critically important that underlies all of this. Why this approach is possible. We serve a generous God. He has so lavished us with his love. He has been so generous to me and to you in his grace. He has 
been so generous in his patience with us, his care, his provision for us, and all of the promises we have in this life and the next. And friends, the ultimate act of his generosity and love is that he has given us his son. And that as we are sent, we get to tell other people about this gift. See, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Generosity out of love. This is what God has done for me. It's what God has done for you. His love is compassionate. It is self-giving. He so generously gave us his precious son purely by his grace when we were dead in sin. And this is what it means to be ascending church, that we have the privilege of generously serving our generous God. We're facing this inflection point. It's so beautiful and so good to see what God has done in this church body over the last number of years. And let's be honest, we're living in a world of decay and darkness that needs us to be salt and light. We have been given so much. We've been entrusted. We've been entrusted with God's resources, with the very life that we have, with skills and time and energy and ultimately the precious treasure of the gospel. And we've been planted here today for this moment that we have this community that we're in, in Hastings and Cottage Grove and the surrounding areas, we have this 10 acres that we're on. We have the neighborhoods and workplaces that you live, that, that I live in, places that we go, that we have the opportunity to shine the light of Christ so that others will glorify our Father in heaven. We're looking ahead to a, a party next Sunday which is going to be really fun as we celebrate what God has done, is doing, and will do through our church. Here's my invitation as we look ahead to that week. Let's be a church that sows generously for God's kingdom. Seeing this as a unique opportunity to deepen roots and extend branches to be salt and light for the next 40 years. Let's generously sow into those 60 kids that are down the hall every Sunday who are learning the scriptures and being taught the gospel, who are having a life of faithfulness to God as salt and light in this world being modeled to them week by week. Let's generously train up teenagers who can rightly discern truth from error and, and who will live with integrity in a challenging world. We have 13 kids at camp this weekend. We have something like 20 or so on a Wednesday Friends, we have an opportunity to train them up to know Jesus, to love him, to follow, follow him. Let's generously pour into each other through Bible studies and prayer groups and accountability and training so that we can walk faithfully side by side in a vibrant community of faith. Let's, let's generously sow in evangelism and missions, partnering with those near and far to spread the gospel, to see lives changed. Let's generously develop our land that we have 
and our facility to put on display how God is sovereign over this, over all of his creation and every part of our lives. This means embedding the study of scripture into things as simple as cultivating a prairie or a forest. Something as beautiful as growing a garden like we do with the kids in the summer. Something like learning skills or doing science or music or art or theater for the glory of God as we see the truths of the Bible come alive through hands-on discipleship. Friends, God can do all these things. And he is generous. And he has so lavished us with his grace and our salvation in Jesus Christ. That we have freely received because of the gospel. And so freely we give our lives back to him. Whatever he has planned, we want to be on his agenda and his timing. And we open our hands to say, Lord, use us. Use us. Ultimately, I pray that these words that we sung would be true for my life, that they'd be true for yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. Let's pray. Lord, your will be done here in this church as we look at your command, your calling to be salt and light, put us in places, give us opportunities in workplaces and homes and teaching kids and grandkids and neighbors and friends that we would have opportunities, Lord, that you would put us in this world to, to be salt that preserves and slows the rot and puts us in situations where we can speak living words into places that are dying and dead, Lord, but that we would also be places we can shine your light to bring truth and goodness and beauty and to cultivate things for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would use us, this church body, in every passion and skill and resource you've given us to open our hands. Freely we've received from you, Lord. We hold things with an open hand to say, use us. Bear fruit for your glory that in us, through salt and being light, as we shine the light of Christ, that people will come to glorify our Father in heaven. That we will see a harvest for your kingdom. People coming to faith being saved to be redeemed and be blood-bought children, and then to see lives changed and transformed that you would get all the glory. Use us, Lord, for that. Consecrate us for that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.